Chapter 19 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Calm Dragon. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 19 Men Who Coached. Part B. Listening to Youst. Hurry Up Youst is one of the most interesting and enthusiastic football coaches in the country. The title of Hurry Up has been given him on account of the pep he puts into his men and the speed at which they work. Whether in a restaurant, or a crowded street, hotel lobby, or on a railroad train, Yost will proceed to demonstrate this or that play and carefully explain many of the things well worthwhile in football. He is always in deadly earnest. Out of the football season, during business hours, he is ever ready to talk the game. Yao's football experience as a player began at the University of West Virginia, where he played tackle. Lafayette beat them that year 6-0. to zero. Shortly after this, Yaust entered Lafayette. His early experience in football there was under the famous football expert and writer, Park Davis. Yaust and Reinhardt wear a broad smile as they tell of the way Park Davis used to entertain the teams off the field. He always kept them in the finest of humor. Park Davis, they say, is a born entertainer, and many an evening in the clubhouse did he keep their minds off football by a wonderful demonstration of sleight of hand with the cards. If Park Davis had taken his coat off and stuck to coaching, he would have been one of the greatest leaders in that line in the country today, says Yaust. He was more or less a bug on football. You know that to be good in anything one must be crazy about it. Davis was certainly a bug on football, and so am I. Everybody knows that. I shall never forget Davis after Lafayette had beaten Cornell 6-0 in 1895 at Ithaca. That night, in the course of the celebration, Park uncovered everything he had in the way of entertainment and gave an exhibition of his famous dance, so aptly named the Dance du Venture, by the enthusiastic Lafayette alumnus John Clark. I have been at Michigan fifteen seasons. My 1901 team is perhaps the most remarkable in the history of football in many ways. It scored 550 points to opponents nothing, and journeyed 3,500 miles. We played Stanford on New Year's Day, using no substitutes. On this great team were Neil Snow and the remarkable quarterback Boss Weeks. Willie Heston, who was playing his first year at Michigan, was another star on this team. A picture of Michigan's great team appears on the opposite page. Boss Week's two teams scored more than 1,200 points. If that team had been in the front of the Chinese wall and got the signal to go, not a man would have hesitated. Every man that played under Boss Week's idolized him, and when word was brought to the university that he had died, every Michigan man felt that its university had lost one of its greatest men. I am perhaps more of a boy's man today than I ever was. There is a great satisfaction in feeling that you have an influence in the lives of the men under you. Coaching is a sacred job, there is no question about it. There is wonderful athletic spirit at Michigan, and when we have mass meetings in the Hill Auditorium, 6,000 men turn out. At such a time, one feels the great power behind an athletic team. Some of the great Michigan football players within my recollection were Jimmy Baird, Jack McLean, Neil Snow, Boss Weeks, Tom Hammond, Willie Heston, Hernston, Grand Old Germany Schultz, 
Ben Brook, Stan Wells, Dan McEwen, David Allardyce, Hugh White, and others I might mention on down to John Malbetch. Reggie Brown is probably one of the most famous of the Harvard coaches. His work in Harvard football is to find out what the other teams are doing. He is on hand at Yale Field every Saturday when the Yale team plays. He is unique in his scouting work in that he carries his findings in his head. His memory is his mental notebook. In talking with Harvard men, I have found that the general impression is that the work of this coach is one of Harvard's biggest assets. Jimmy Knox of Harvard is one of Houghton's most valued scouts. Every fall, Princeton is his haven of scouting. He does it most successfully and in a truly sportsmanlike way. One day, en route to Princeton, I met Knox on the train and sat with him as far as Princeton Junction. When we arrived at Princeton, a friend of mine called me aside and said, Who is that loyal Princeton man who seems never to miss a game? He is not a Princeton man, I replied. He is Knox, the Harvard scout. He will be with Houghton tomorrow at Cambridge with his dope book. From questions asked me, I am quite sure that there is an utter misconception of the work of the scouts for the big league teams, says Jimmy. I have frequently been asked how I get in to see the practice of our opponents, how I manage to get their signals, how I anticipate what they are going to do, what is the value of scouting anyway. From five years' experience, I can say that I have never seen our opponents except in public games. I have never unconsciously noted a signal, even for a kick, much less made a deliberate attempt to learn the opponent's signals or code. What little I know of their ultimate plans is merely by applying common sense to their problem, based on the material and methods which they command. As to the value of scouting, volumes might be written, but suffice it to say that it is the principal means of standardizing the game. If the big teams of the country played throughout the season in seclusion, the final games would be a hodgepodge of varying systems which would curtail the interest of the spectator and all but block the development of the game. The reports of the scouts give the various coaching corps a fixed objective so that the various teams come to their final game with what might be considered a uniform examination to pass. The result is a steady, logical development of the game from the inside and the maximum interest for the spectator. It is unfortunate that the public has misconstructed scouting to mean spying, for there is nothing underhanded in the scouting department of football, as any big team coach will testify. Knox tells of an interesting experience of his freshman year. I never hear the question debated as to whether character is born in a man or developed as time goes on, says he, without recalling my first meeting with Marshall Newell, probably the best-loved man that ever graduated from Harvard. In the middle of the 90s, it was considered beneath the dignity of a former varsity player to coach any but varsity candidates. Marshall Newell was an exception. Without solicitation, he came over to the freshman field many times and gave us youngsters the benefit of his advice. On his first trip, he went into the lineup and gave us an example of how the game could be played by a master. When the practice was over, Ma Newell came up to me and said, I guess I was a little rough, my boy, but I just wanted to test your grit. You had better come over to the varsity field tomorrow with two or three of the other fellows that I'm going to speak to. 
I'll watch you and help you after you get there. And he did. He was loved because he was big enough to disregard convention, to sympathize with the less proficient, and to make an inferior feel as if he were on a plane of equality. The highest type of manhood was born with Marshall Newell and developed through every hour of a too short life. Only those who played football in the old days and have carefully followed it since appreciate the difference in the two types of game. I frequently wonder if the old type of game did not develop more in a man than the modern. As a freshman, I was playing halfback on the second varsity one afternoon when a sudden blow knocked me unconscious while the play was at one end of the field. When I regained consciousness, the play was at the other end of the field. Not a soul was near me or thinking of me. I had hardly gotten within earshot of the scrimmage when I heard Lewis, one of the varsity coaches, call out, Come on, get in here. They can't kill fellows like you. I went into the scrimmage and played the rest of the afternoon. It was a simple incident, but I learned two lessons of life from it. First, you can expect mighty little sympathy when you are down. Second, you are not out if you will only go back and stick to it. Dartmouth holds a unique position in college football. There are many men who were responsible for Dartmouth's success, men who have stood by year after year and worked out the football policy there. It is my experience that Dartmouth Men University call Ed Hall the father of Dartmouth football. He has served faithfully on the rules committee as well as an official in the game. Myron E. Witham, that great player and captain of the Dartmouth team which was victorious over Harvard the day that Harvard opened the stadium, says, If one goes back to Hanover and visits a trophy room, he will see hanging there the winning football which Dartmouth men glory over as they recall that wonderful victory over Harvard. Ed Hall is the man who is often called upon to speak to the men between the halves. His talks have a telling effect. Hall's name is traditional at our college. There are many football enthusiasts who recall that wonderful backfield that Dartmouth had. McCornack, Ekstrom, McAndrews, and Crolius. These men got away wonderfully fast and hit the line like one man. They played every game without a substitute for two years. Fred Corlius, who takes great delight in recalling the old days, has the following to say about the one who coached. One man, whose influence more than any other one thing, succeeded in laying a foundation for the Dartmouth's wonderful results, but whose name is seldom mentioned in that connection, is Dr. Wurtenberg, who was brought up in the early Yale football school. He had the keenest sense of fundamental football and the greatest intensity of spirit in transmitting his hard-earned knowledge. Four critical years he worked with us, filling every one with his enthusiasm, and those four years Dartmouth football gained such headway that nothing could stop its growth. Enough space cannot be given to pay proper tribute to Walter McCornack, Dartmouth 97. Myron Witham relates a humorous incident that happened in practice when McCornack was coach at Dartmouth. Mac's serious and exacting demeanor on the practice field occasionally relaxed to enjoy a humorous situation. He chose to give a personal demonstration of my position and duty as quarterback in a particular formation around the end. He took my place, and giving the proper signal, the team, or rather ten-elevenths of the team, went through with the play. 
leaving Mac behind standing in his tracks. Mac naturally was at a loss to locate the quarter during the execution of the play, and madly yelled, Where in the devil is that quarterback? But he immediately joined with the squad in the joke upon himself. McCornack coached Dartmouth in the falls of 1901 and 1902. He brought the team up from nothing to a two-years defeat of Brown and two-years scoring on Harvard. The game with Harvard in the fall of 1902 resulted in a score of 16-6, to Dartmouth outrushing Harvard at least 3-1. to McCornack then resigned, but left a wealth of material and a scientific game at Dartmouth, which was as good as any in the country. This was the beginning of Dartmouth's success in modern football and for it McCornack has been named the father of modern football at Dartmouth, the greatest compliment ever paid McCornack, in so far as athletics were concerned, was by President William Jewett Tucker of Dartmouth, who told an alumnus of the institution, The discipline that McCornack maintained on the football field at Dartmouth was to the advantage of the general discipline of the institution. For ten years after McCornack had stopped coaching at Dartmouth, the captain of the Dartmouth team would wear his sweater in a Harvard game as an emblem to go by. The sweater is now worn out, and no one knows where it is. If Eddie Holt's record at Princeton told of nothing else than the making of a great guard, this would be enough to establish Holt's ability as a guard coach. Eddie and Sam Craig played alongside of each other in the Yale defeat of 97. Holt says, the story of the making of Sam Craig is the old story of the stone the builders rejected, which is now the headstone of the corner. Sam never forgot the 97 defeat, and I never have myself. After this game, Sam gave up football, although he was eligible to play. Two years later, after Princeton had been defeated by Cornell, something had to be done to strengthen the Princeton line. Sam Craig was at the seminary. I remembered him, said Holt, and went over to his room and told him that he was needed. I shall never forget how his face lit up as he felt there was an opportunity to serve Princeton and a chance to play on a winning team, a chance to come back. He responded to my hurry call, eager to make good. Coaching him was the finest thing I ever did in football. Good old Sam. I can see him now, standing on the sidelines, telling me that he guessed he was no good. You can never imagine how happy I was to see him improve day by day after I had taken a hold of him. The great game he played against Yale in 99 will always be one of my happiest recollections in football. My joy was supreme, the joy that comes to a coach as he sees his man make good. Sam Shear did. It is very doubtful whether the inside story of Harvard's victory over Yale in 1908 has ever been told. Those who remember this game know that the way for victory was paved by Ver Wiebe and Vic Kennard. Harry Kersberg, a Harvard coach, writes of that incident. The summer of 1907 and 1908, Kennard worked for several hours each day perfecting his kicking. This fact was known only to one of the coaches. In 1906 and 1907, Kennard played as a substitute, but was most unfortunate in being smashed up in nearly every game in which he played. On account of this record, he was given little or no attention at the beginning of the 1908 season, 
even though the one coach who had great confidence in Kennard's ability as a kicker rooted hard for him at every coach's meeting. About the middle of the season, Dave Campbell came on from the West, and with the one lone coach became interested in Kennard. On the day of the Springfield Training School game, most of the Harvard coaches went down to New Haven, leaving the team in charge of Campbell and Kennard's other rooter. The psychological moment had arrived. Just as soon as the Harvard team had rolled up a tidy little score, Kennard was sent into the game and instructions were given to the quarterback that he was to signal for a drop kick every time the Harvard team was within 40 yards of the opponent's goal, no matter what the angle might be. The game ended with Kennard having kicked four goals from the field out of six tries. Nearly all of them were kicked from an average distance of 30 yards and at very difficult angles. At the next coaches' meeting, serious consideration was given to what Kennard had done, and from that time on he came into his own. Now for Rex Verweeb. For two years he had plugged away at a line position on the second team. In his senior year he was advanced to the varsity squad. With all his hard work it seemed impossible for him to develop into anything but a mediocre lineman. The line coaches, with much regret, had about given up all hope. One afternoon, two weeks before the Yale game, one of the line coaches was standing on the sidelines talking with Pooch Donovan about Verweeb. Pooch said little, but kept a close watch on Verweeb for the next two or three days. At the end of that time he came out with a statement that if Verweeb could be taught how to start, he would rapidly develop into one of the best halfbacks on the squad. Pooch's advice was followed, and in the Yale game, Verweeb's rushes outside tackle were one of the features of the game and were directly responsible for the ball being brought down the field to such a position that it was possible to substitute Kennard, who kicked a goal from the field and won the first victory for Harvard against Yale in many years. It is strange coincidence that the first of Harvard's string of victories against Yale was won by two men who a few weeks before the game were in the so-called football discard. No greater honor can be accorded football man than the invitation to come back to his alma mater and take charge of the football situation. Such a man has been selected after he has served efficiently at other institutions, for it takes long experience to become a great coach, and there are very few men who have given up all their time to consecutive coaching. Successful coaches, as a rule, are men who have a genius for it, and whose strong personalities bring out the natural ability of the men under them. Successful football is the result of a good system plus good material. Of the men who coach today, the experience of John H. Rush, popularly known as Speedy Rush, stands out as unique. Rush never played football, for he preferred track athletics, but he understood the theory of the game. At the university school in Cleveland, where Rush taught for many years, he took charge of the football team, and although coaching mere boys, his results were marvelous, and in 1915, when the Princeton coaching system was in a slew of despond, it was decided to give Rush an opportunity to show what he could do at Princeton. Rush makes no boast. He is a silent worker, and football people at large were unanimous in their praise of his work at Princeton in the fall of 1915. Whatever the future holds in store for this coach, Princeton men at least are sure that an efficient policy has been established which will be followed out year after year, 
and that the loyal support of the alumni is behind Rush. There was never a time in Yale's history when so much general discussion and care entered in the selection of its football coach as in 1915. For the long list of Yale football graduates, the honor was bestowed upon Tad Jones, a man whose remarkable playing record at Yale is well known. Football records tell of his wonderful runs. His personality enables him to get close to the men, and he was wonderfully successful at Exeter, coaching his old school. Tad Jones represents one of the highest types of college athletes. In 1915, when the college authorities decided Columbia might re-enter the football arena after a lapse of ten years, it was a wonderful victory for the loyal Columbia football supporters. A most thorough and exhaustive search was then made for the proper man to teach Columbia the new football. The man who won the committee's unanimous vote was Thomas N. Metcalf, who played football at Oberlin, Ohio. Metcalf earned recognition in his first year. He realized that Columbia's re-entrance into football must be gradual, and his schedule was arranged accordingly. He developed Miller, a quarterback who stood on a par with the best quarterbacks in 1915. Columbia had great confidence in Metcalf, and the pick of the old men, notably Tom Thorpe, one of the gamest players any team ever had, volunteered their aid. One of the most prominent football coaches which Pennsylvania boasts of today is Bob Falwell. Always a brilliant player, full of spirit and endowed with great power of leadership, he was a huge success as a coach at Lafayette. His teams beat Princeton. At Washington and Jefferson he beat Yale twice. His ability as a coach was watched carefully, not only by the graduates of Penn, but by the football world as a whole. In 1916, this hard-working, energetic, up-to-date coach assumed control of the football situation on Franklin Field. End of chapter 19. Recording by calmdragon.net.